Did you really just click on that title? You saw what this episode is called, right? Why does the world need more accounting influencers? Influencer has such a has such a bad vibe. I feel like influencer is just, I don't know, educator, but in new media form. I'll share a few thoughts on like the business of being an influencer, why I would love for more accountants to get, in, get into this stuff. We just need more. But it's Q&A Friday, so we're covering a bunch of stuff. Should you be using like paid social media, paid acquisition to get clients? How should that fit in alongside like organic social media reach, posting to social? Should we be doing that? The paid side, is that a thing that accounting firms should look at? What processes are AI most suited to tackle for us in the near future? Does AI remove ultimately the need for expertise? Let's talk about it. Come on in. It's Q&A Friday. Okay, the whole, the world needs more accounting influencers. So this stemmed from a clip. I'm going to insert it right here. I talked with one of the influencers in in the accounting space. I bet that guy's just a thrill to be around. (laughs) (laughs) Accounting influencers. Yeah. It's like, ooh, he's got his his top button on button. You like to party. (laughs) That guy's just a thrill. That's from the My First Million podcast, a real popular uh, think boy entrepreneurship pod. The reality is like there are quote unquote influencers for almost everything now, and it's just going to keep trending in that direction. And maybe we come up with a more more apt moniker than influencer. Uh, I prefer content creator, Uh, but basically you're like an educator. And so in the same way that we used to be educated by going to like day-long CPE conferences or, or like, oh my gosh, when I was early days in tax, we do this like gear up thing, right? So before every tax season, we would do two days in person at these conferences. They got a whole row of snacks in the back and that was the highlight. You had a three ring binder. At the end of the binder were some empty pages for making notes. And those were some of the longest days of my life. And I just don't know that people really learn that way so much anymore. It is videos, it's social media, like right or wrong, like people just learn differently. I have a hard time seeing a bunch of Zoomers going and like sitting in two day, I don't know, update trainings. Doesn't seem realistic to me. But you also have like the bigger problem of all of these big like macro trends and mainstream uh, headlines around AI and like changes in uh, professional work. And we've all seen these headlines, but you also see just how out of touch folks are who aren't in our space and don't understand like the nuance of what we're doing. Even in that, uh, you know, just after that podcast clip, they're talking about what a ripe opportunity creating apps for the QuickBooks ecosystem is. And it's like, buddy, we've been we've been there for the last few decades. If anything, that that whole thing is contracting as practice management systems are like kind of rolling up more functionality and doing deeper integrations into the ledger. But the most helpful content for accountants or people running firms, people like you and I, it's going to come from other accountants. Like, I hope I can ultimately inspire, you know, a bunch of other people to get into doing all sorts of different types of education for accounting firms. Goodness knows there aren't many of them. I had a joke in, uh, I think it's in the main channel video that comes out this Sunday, but it was like, how many big four partners are out there running YouTube channels telling you how to run a better accounting firm uh like like none and i don't i don't expect like a great deal of collaboration at that end of the spectrum but if you look at other spaces like uh software development 
tons of influencer thought leader type people around software development. I, maybe because it's, I don't know, like a more, more progressive space or something like that. But there's a whole bunch of things happening all at the same time that just like point to the fact that the future of media is people. And so as uh, trust becomes more and more of a thing and AI makes it easier to produce huge volumes of like lower quality content. And so the, the value of that stuff just kind of erodes and becomes worse and worse. Ultimately, we, I, I am almost certain we are still going to cling to people to filter through all of that for us. Like if I build a relationship with someone who I trust, I'm going to assign more value to their opinion than something that just shows up in my social media feed. And especially as it's increasingly hard to know what is real and what is not real, new media, like quote unquote influencers, whatever you want to call them, those followings become super, super viable. Like they are a, a trusted gatekeeper. If there's somebody that I trust and they put something in front of me, I'm going to assign an entirely different value to it than if I get a cold email from this company or cold DM or, or something like that. If you think about like tax advice that you see on TikTok and just like financial bro culture on social media and, and how problematic that is, like man, is that shining a light on the importance of having trusted people putting out content. And I, when we think that, I think our mind goes to the mega scale content, folks. And that's not what I'm talking about. That's not what this needs to be. This just needs to be on a small scale for a specific type of person. Uh, which gets me to the next question I'm going to touch on um, around paid acquisition. So thoughts on cold email and LinkedIn prospecting for accounting firms. Basically, an automated outbound uh, acquisition system can reach out to tens of thousands of people per month. I'm going to tell you why I don't like it, but then I'll tell you why I'll give it a maybe. When it comes to client acquisition, and I've talked about this a lot, the state at which I want a client coming in the door is one where they already know me well. They already trust that we know what we are doing because they have seen you in a podcast or they've read your newsletter or something like that. When those clients come in with a high level of trust in you, they are willing to pay more. They already have a relationship with you. Think of it, I mean, think of it this way. If you've listened to this podcast a lot or watched a lot of my YouTube videos, if you were gonna hire a consultant and you had the option of either working with me or working with a consultant that you've never talked about, but they are a, a coach for you know accountants or whatever it is, entering into an engagement with me is wildly different than entering into an engagement with a coach you haven't met. I would also argue that entering into an engagement with a coach where maybe you got emailed like a free asset or something like that while being better than nothing is not the same as entering into an engagement with me when you've already like built trust and kind of developed that relationship from just consuming some of this person's content. So it's situational here because not everybody's in the same in the same place. If you're starting a firm tomorrow, you need some quick wins. You need a way to get some work. Like if you're in that stage where you'll take just about anything. And so there's going to be exceptions to the rule here. There's a lot of accountants out there that just like they don't want to have to do any of that stuff. You can call it marketing. I honestly think it's just part of professional services these days, like being visible on the internet. A lot of people that don't want to do that. And that is fine. There's some things that you're leaving on the table. I think I think the, the biggest thing you miss by not engaging online is not just the immediate like potential attracting clients sort of angle, but just the the upside and the serendipity that's enabled by being visible online. 
human nature is to like try to plan out every step of the process, right? And like try to will in existence this snapshot you have of the future and what exactly that could look like. When all of us on our phones, on our computer, have access to this like infinite pool of possibility that can be enabled by all the other human beings on this planet. And if I were to bet on my own ability to uh, imagine the best timeline for me and manifest that, you know, taking the reins and controlling every step of that journey versus putting myself out there and being visible, I have to think that the entire universe has something more, something different to offer me than just that path that I am like clinging to the reins of trying to manifest myself. So like the whole social media thing to me isn't marketing, yes, but it's also like being a citizen of the world in 2024, building relationships with actual other human beings, opening yourself up to things that you couldn't imagine doing. I can't stress enough how much what's happening right now was not me five years ago. Never made a video, never posted on social media. You would be shocked at how quickly things can change. I, and I ultimately went down this path because it's, it's a way to help more people. And if you would have, you know, told me whether this would be possible five years ago, like I would have never imagined it. And honestly, like the people, people who find success and the people we look up to, that is just, that's how good things happen. Like you don't believe that this is a thing that you can do until you do it, until you live through it. And then you go on a podcast interview and they're like, wow, tell me your journey, this and that. And some people will be like, oh yeah, well, first we did this and then we did that. Other people like me will just be like, yeah, man, I don't know. It kind of just happened. There was no master plan. Like it's just little brick on little brick. And before you know it, you look back in a couple of years and go, dang, that's wild. I was just in Palm Springs in February. I can't imagine ever having that flexibility in the past when I was running a tax practice. Like things just change. And it happens because every day you're making little bets in yourself, little bets in leverage, even, even when it is hard to measure that short-term ROI sometimes. This episode is sponsored in part by Cloud, Cloud Accountant Staffing. Y'all know I'm a big advocate of hiring offshore. One of the biggest changes I made in my firm, we transitioned a legacy firm from 100% onshore local hiring to 100% distributed US and then 100% distributed globally hiring. And honestly, is the best thing I, we did. It virtually alleviated all of our hiring pains completely changed how we thought about staffing projects and the type of work that we wanted to bring on. Because you know what? The folks we hired offshore, really freaking good. A lot of misconceptions around the type of people that you hire offshore uh, because your enterprises will oftentimes use offshore folks for like menial work. Absolutely not the case. Uh, there are tens of thousands of people working for big four accounting firms, you know, offshore, uh, outside the US, you can get folks that can do anything from tax to junior level stuff to super senior level stuff. Uh, but try to do that yourself, figure it all out yourself. That's gonna be hard, it's gonna be scary. Really good place to start. Cloud accountant staffing, they will hold your hand through that process. Their story is super simple. Uh, an accounting firm in the US hired a bunch of people in the Philippines, fell in love with them, but didn't fall in love with the fees they were having to pay to the staffing companies that were managing these employees. So they built their own solution. 
now they're starting to pull other accountants in. I'd encourage you, a, a big tipping point for me was when I was like, I'm gonna stop being opinionated on this and just try to learn. And so I talked to the other practitioners, I talked to some of the vendors that would like help you get into offshoring. Uh, that really opened things up for me. So if you've been on the fence, I'd encourage you to at least learn about it. If you start heading down that path, consider cloud accountant staffing. This episode is sponsored in part by LiveFlow. Gang, tale as old as time. You've got these clients, you're trying to get them on, a, on the same like chart of accounts. You want to do like this roll-up reporting for all these different companies within a group or for benchmarking across a bunch of companies in the same industry. But getting all these people to agree to the same chart of accounts, you know how it goes. Uh, check this out. Talked a bit about LiveFlow's new consolidation functionality. Rolls up QBO files with like wildly different chart of accounts. They don't need to be all matchy matchy. We did a video on it on the main channel a couple months back now. Probably the quickest way I've seen to like do these rollups. Super easy, just click through the accounts to associate them back to groups. And because it's live flow, all that stuff will keep updating automatically as the PL changes month over month. You don't have to then like go redo this consolidation every single time. I was in, uh, you know, I was in New York a couple of weeks ago, went to the LiveFlow offices there, chatted with them. Uh, the consolidations release greatly exceeded their expectations. It actually took them by surprise uh, how excited people are about it because you know how long like a good way to do consolidations has been an issue and like somehow this is still such a headache and requires so much manual work. Anyways, if you're looking for an easier way to do roll-ups, uh, I'll put a link down in the show notes. LiveFlow's got a pretty cool solution for that stuff now. And that actually folds really well into uh, this question from Derek, uh, which, I, which I think is like resonates with most accountants. Uh, Derek said in a YouTube comment, the intimidating thing about a newsletter is needing to create regular content and adding it to the ongoing to-do list. Getting on that hamster wheel is a commitment. You've spoken in the past about content, the content generation issue. But what do you think about the time and commitment requirement? Yeah. So like a fear when starting a newsletter is basically, am I committing myself to doing this a lot now? And like just adding one more recurring thing to the to-do list, which we ought to be allergic to, like recurring obligations, like recurring meetings. Those are the biggest time sucks. I can tell you my experience. And so like, just, just like zooming out on a on kind of a wider perspective of your professional career and your trajectory. What I can say is, as I think most of us can agree, that surely in the internet age, the highest leverage way to go through your professional career is not exclusively investing your time in one-on-one -on -one private client work, right? Like most of us can agree with the amount of reach that the internet enables, and the idea that better clients could find you if you're visible on the internet. And the fact that you can even sell things at an unbelievable, you know, volume, like more products, that sort of thing. Like if you can, if you can sell an hour of your time for $200, uh, you can absolutely sell a product for $100 that thousands of people could happily buy. So just like the whole math of professional services in the internet age, are we going to be doing one-on-one -on -one private services almost always? Like, yeah, most likely. But does it have to be 100% of your revenue? And is living in the dark, not being visible online, and never leaning into one-to-many services, is that the most efficient, highest leverage way to go through a professional services career now? I have to think no. And so the trap here is, is like with anything else, the easy thing to do is to keep doing more of the same. 
is to keep doing more one-on-one work, one -on -one work with clients. It's the same reason that when we make efficiency gains, we don't trade in that automation, like that time savings now for doing higher value work. That's not the way humans work. Like the default path is to take on one more client doing the exact same thing that you were doing before. And this is where like change management and having a plan for that time that you get back, like this is where that gets important. If you really are going to be intentional about doing, you know, advising or more valuable work or something like that, you have to earmark that time. Otherwise you will default to just doing more of the same. But like something has to break there. Somehow we have to like zoom out to say, somehow I've got to get a little bit of time back so that I can invest in leverage. That is leverage that will uh, drive business to my firm. That is leverage that will increase my own personal visibility, help you build that network of really smart, really capable people online uh, where who knows down the road, like there could be opportunities there. It could open you up to things that you never would have imagined doing. It's not a coincidence that like the most visible people that you see online uh, get pulled into opportunities, like really cool, exciting opportunities. And if you were like me before you did anything online, you would look at those people and you would think that they were somehow different. Well, the reality is the only thing different about these people is they are just investing their time differently. Take somebody like uh, Logan Graff. And he repeated this the other day, so I feel okay bringing it up again. He said, as Jason says, if Logan can start and run a successful tax firm, anybody can do it. And now Logan's making really cool videos on his YouTube channel and all that. And nobody would know about Logan. And this is, I think about this for myself a lot. You wouldn't know who the heck that guy was if he wasn't making YouTube videos, if he wasn't active on Twitter. You don't think that opportunities are being afforded to Logan in ways right now that they aren't to folks that aren't making those investments? Like, where does that go two years from now or 10 years from now? I mean, man, I was, I only owned my firm three years before I had moved to this stuff completely because it was just such a, such a higher leverage opportunity. And you don't have to do it if you don't want to. It was just like, I was exposed to going and taking, uh, being able to take cool role, really amazing roles at big firms because these people watch me online and they respect my opinions and saw me as like a thought leader. And so they're like, these relationships are opened up to me that I would not have otherwise had access to. So like big picture, it comes down to that same old like pie chart of your time again, right? Like it's just a matter of, I think, being aware that the easy thing to do is to just always be doing more of the same, but we are the only ones looking out for our own time. Everyone else is making demands of our time, but we are the only ones that are looking out for, is this actually a good thing to invest my time in or not? And so like the ability to invest in higher leverage stuff, like it starts and stops with you just being able to make time for it. Now, what I suspect, Derek, what I think your question is really more about is like, okay, how do I like do this as efficiently as possible? Maybe like if I'm going to commit to putting together a newsletter, uh, is, that kind of, is that a two day thing? Is that a one hour thing? Can that be a 20 minute thing? And the answer is like, it's very different for different people. And it is a learned skill to try to make that as turnkey as possible to develop what, what they, people call formats or like plug and play uh, consistent things where people learn to expect this in your newsletter. And that's what they want to see each time. And because there's that consistency, it makes it quicker and easier for you to, to develop that newsletter each week or each month or whatever it is. Let's do an episode on that. Maybe either next week or the week after. How to make an, a, a newsletter as turnkey as possible. Uh, like a few format ideas. Uh, and and the, the big hack here is how can we turn something that I'm already doing 
into a newsletter. Like all the questions that I'm already answering for clients, how can I turn that stuff, basically repurpose what I'm already doing into content that more people can benefit from? That's the real goal here. Uh, as I have been reiterating lately, you already have in your head everything you need to do a weekly newsletter, to post on social media, to write a book. It's all up in your noggin already. It's just not in the right format yet. So that could be a good thing to go a little deeper on how to make that as just as turnkey and easy for you as possible. Uh, give you a starting point to where you can whip that thing together in like 30 minutes every week or every month. Thanks for the question, Derek. These, these are like, we all have these same blockers. So like kind of verbally processing these and thinking through them collectively, I think is really helpful for people. Uh, what processes are AI most suited to handle? I got this one recently and it's just kind of a, a big picture like where is AI headed when it comes to accounting processes? Honestly, gang, it's so I, a huge change is happening right now. We talked a little bit about uh, Gemini 1.5, which Google announced, which is their next like tippy top frontier language model. Uh, the big party trick here is it has a, a context limit of up to 10 million tokens. This is several thousand pages of information that it can remember at any given time. And in the early testing of it, it is really, really good at fetching the correct relevant bit out of there to answer a question. So if you have a thousand pages of information, that doesn't necessarily mean that if I ask it, what is Jason's favorite ice cream flavor? And there's just one sentence in that information that says Jason's favorite ice cream flavor is chocolate. Doesn't necessarily mean it's going to fetch that every time. But in the testing of Gemini 1.5 that's been out there so far, it's really, really good at that. And so, I mean, there's tons, it goes without saying, there's tons of applications where we could throw thousands of pages of something at an AI and say, help me get to an answer for this question. And that is just wildly, wildly more efficient than any sort of research process that we have right now. That data can be regulatory stuff. It can be, uh, I mean, it can be transactions in a general ledger. This is like the active memory of the language model is thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of text. That's tens of thousands of transactions. The active memory of Gemini 1.5, like the things that it can just pull up and like manipulate and work with at any given time. That's wild. So when it comes to what processes are AI most suited to handle, uh, in the near term, honestly, I think uh, it will be any any process that you can explain to an AI and ask it to do for you. So some examples we've rolled out in the past are like, uh, you know, an assistant that will write a script to deliver a set of financial statements with. So I'm gonna, if I'm gonna deliver a set of financial statements on video to a client, what is like, will it generate a, a three minute script for me about what things I need to go through and those financials? So can I instruct that language model Always bring up cash. Always bring up wages. Only bring up items on the PL if they change more than 30% and are over $300, you know, some materiality threshold. Can I instruct it very explicitly on what I want it to do? If so, it may already be good enough to like automate that thing for you. This episode is brought to you in part by Tima, helping you recruit top Filipino accountants without any ongoing monthly fees. The difference between TeamUp and all the other offshoring options is that TeamUp helps you hire staff directly. No middleman. You work directly with your new hire in the Philippines. Hire the person, not the company. Guys, gals, gang, here's just a few reasons to hire directly. You have access to higher level talent. Makes sense. You have complete control over team culture and training. 
They keep 100% of what you pay them, and it's a lot more affordable for you so you can retain your team for the long term. Team Up can source accountants with experience working at US or Australian firms familiar with tools like Xero, QBO, and Dex. Also recruit specialist roles, team leaders, tax specialists, administrative assistants. Thought experiment. What if you had an executive assistant for the first time this tax season? Just, just throwing it out there. What would they do? Start at that email video I did on the main channel recently. Get help with that stanky old inbox. I digress. Team Up recruits these talented folks for a flat one-time fee of 4,000 US American dollars. That's it, 4K one time. Somebody at Robert Half just did a spit take. Robert Half reference. Are we ever gonna get Robert Half to sponsor this podcast? Not anymore. And they can connect you with an affordable employer of record if you need help with payroll and compliance once you hire that person. Big fan of hiring in the Philippines. You know I did a bunch of that. Uh, check out the link in the description to learn more about Team Up. Not all models are made the same when it comes to their ability to follow instructions. A real, a very human problem that we have is in our head we have an expectation, but we're not always good about explicitly defining what that expectation is. It's a pain point with how we work with AI. It's a pain point with how we work with other humans. And so the processes that are open like to being improved here is really anything that we can get the language model access to and explain very explicitly what we want done. And a really interesting example here is like quality assurance for a general ledger or uh, going through a, a checklist, you know, a, like a tax review checklist. Uh, we all get kind of that checklist blindness where like once we've done it 100 times, are you really paying that close of attention for a given checklist? Let's just get really basic. If you've got 10 things on a tax review checklist, can you instruct a language model to can you instruct it on what they need to check to be able to check off that checkbox? This is the power of AI. If that is a prompt that you can write once and you can develop it and improve it over time and all of that, but you are really building software here now when you're developing that prompt or that GPT, you are giving it really explicit instructions as to how to check whether that thing has been done or not. And you write it once and you can use that thing until the end of time on as many projects as you want to. Somebody used the analogy on, on Twitter the other day as they're doing some testing with the new Google language model, that this is kind of like locked in their, their kind of understanding or take that apps are basically databases for language models going forward. So apps are where all the data is where all the data lives. But most of the time when we are working with these apps, it may very well be through language models and conversational ways. And maybe some of the later use cases to go that way are like financial and transactional and, and some of the stuff that we do. But we are genuinely creating like semantic software with our words. We're instructing it on what to do. And in the case of ChatGPT, oftentimes on the back end, what it's really doing is actually writing code too. Like it can write and execute Python code uh, to complete a task for you. So like what processes is it suited for? Um, we will see. We've done some cool stuff lately with uh, very specific prompting, like delivering, um, you know, an assistant, like a chat assistant that can, that can be delivered with a set of financial statements, like one that the client can use. We did an episode on that recently. Last week, uh, we put a put together a GPT that will like uh, total up a set of numbers and like reconcile them into another uh, shorter set of numbers, like the old um, you get you know batch deposits, but it's made up of a bunch of payments. Last week, we made a GPT that will do all of that stuff for you, which is a really computationally hard thing to do, but it works really well. A, a hard thing with AI is it's like 
if there was a killer over the top use case where you just snap your fingers and it and it did this thing from beginning to end, everybody would be super excited and we'd all be adopting it. But the most useful stuff that I see in practice right now are more nuanced use cases. It's more workflow specific stuff. But honestly, that's kind of a good thing because like the big over the top problems that we all share our software platforms are going to solve for those, right? Like that's all the stuff that's going to get built into the software platforms we all use. What's left over is the more personal productivity headaches. And that is the beauty of, of an AI that can, can kind of be your personal assistant with some prompting is it can be really helpful for those one-off tasks that only you have that nobody else can understand. Like that's, that's what gets me really excited about where AI is at right now. Uh, I can't tell if this comment was from a bot or not on the YouTube channel. Uh, it's more or less, uh, you know, along the lines of if AI can do this a thousand times faster and cheaper, then what are what are people ever going to need accountants for, dentists, lawyers, whatever? Uh, but specifically, the statement that AI makes anybody an expert at something overnight, and uh, I think this is a uh, it's something that maybe we think about, but I don't think ultimately is accurate at least where things are at right now, it feels like we're a long ways from AI ever being truly authoritative to be able to point to that thing and say, well, we made the decision because AI told us this and that'd be good enough for anyone. Like if the IRS comes after you to audit you or something like that, you can't point at an AI and say, well, the AI said this or that. If uh, somebody makes a mistake on a dental operation, you can't point to a, an automated robot or something like that and say, well, it was the automated robot's fault. Like there are still... Um, humans that are, I guess, the managers of responsibility. And much of what accountants do is like this, you know, putting their their blessing on a set of financial statements or a tax return or something like that. So I don't see AI removing the need for expertise. It keeps coming upstream in terms of like how expert AI is, and it trivializes everything below that for sure. So if your capabilities are, are at a low level and ultimately AI overcomes that, like, yes, those capabilities are now trivial. But it is going to shine a light on like the higher value and more nuanced things that we still have to keep doing. And anytime we go through this, like it usually kicks off an additional like new sort of thing that we also have to do. So, you know, the Internet enabled access to all the world's information uh, and changed how we approach, you know, fact checking. And now we have misinformation, all these different things. So I would be surprised if all this also did not create some new stuff that maybe it's hard to get our heads around now because it hasn't been an issue yet. But I don't see AI ultimately removing the need for expertise. It makes expertise much more efficient, for sure. But I feel like we're a ways from the human race just rolling over and saying, have your way with the financial system, AI. You can do it. There's maybe an argument to be made that to a degree that's already happening with like stock trading and stuff like that. But one more thing, interesting, uh, Casey Highland called this out in a YouTube comment uh, about AI, the episode about AI agents and agents like operating the computer for us based on the instructions that we're giving it and it can navigate different, different programs and your desktop and all that stuff. Uh, called out that uh, many of these companies are going to have to ditch their per user pricing. Isn't that interesting? That's totally the case. If I have an agent in my accounting ledger or in my practice management system or something like that, and just to the point we were just talking about, those AI agents are capable of doing com complex tasks up to a certain level, and they will be. We're going to get open AI agent software. I, I have to think this year, 
it's going to remove the need for us to be doing a lot of those manual things that we do inside of our programs, which I have to think probably reduces the user account because you're going to have this agent that's doing just a prodigious amount of work around the clock. Now, some software platforms are moving more towards usage-based models. For some types of apps, that works. For other types of apps, that's a little harder. If you have something like Zapier, like that was always run on operations, but even they've kind of gone away from that now. If you're using a tool that you know does e-commerce integrations for you, maybe you're buying it based on number of transactions or something instead of users. But AI agents using software for us, that really does kind of bungle the pricing model. Honestly, it breaks a lot of things about the software ecosystem. Having a single tool that you use that like bridges across then a whole bunch of tools. Uh, how do each of those tools feel about that? There's going to be a strategic decision to be made there for some companies, whether they lean into that or whether they lock it down so that agents can't, can't then use those tools. It's going to be weird. But man, am I excited for us to get better AI agent tools in our hands for, for OpenAI's announcement. The fun thing about OpenAI saying they're working on AI agent software is just anytime they launch something, it is AAA. Like it's frontier. It's as good as there is. We saw that this last week with their new video model, Sora. Uh, they're releasing a text-to-video model where you can now generate videos with it that are like pretty phenomenal, pretty passable in most situations. But to get a really good AI agent release from OpenAI, oh, it's kind of got me honestly going back to like before GPT-4 came out when everybody was like, is this going to be good enough to like wipe out entire industries when it came out? Like that was, there was legitimately like real concern around that because the first chat GPT was pretty good on GPT-3.5. But if GPT-4 is going to be way better, that's the only time I can remember where he had a software release that was like, there's going to be a day where we don't have this. And then the next day we're going to have that. And we genuinely don't know how many jobs that could re replace. Like, we genuinely don't know. And it came out, and I'm sure it, it has, like it has, GPT-4 has displaced jobs and has created new jobs. I still see all sorts of issues with, like, wealth inequality getting worse and stuff like that. And I kind of feel the same way about AI agent software. Like, I'm kind of back where I was pre-GPT-4, where it's like, whew, you see how incredibly powerful this could be. And it's maybe a little spooky, until you get your hands on it, because one day we're not going to have it. The next day we're going to have it. Can I do the old QuickBooks Online bank reconciliation and it tick off the stuff in the bank statement? Like, just how far can we push that? It's going to be exciting. You know we're going to be banging on that thing as soon as we can get our hands on it. Again, when it comes to, like, is this thing going to gonna replace me? I think you're only at risk if you're not paying attention, if you're hiding under a rock. If you're riding the wave, man, tons of opportunity. Because this stuff's going to change the way our clients work as well. So as long as you are keeping up with it and you are plugging into it, doesn't mean you won't have to change, but I would rather be the one riding that wave and like figuring it out, figuring out what it means for my business, for my client's business. As long as you're plugged into that, I don't see, I don't see, I just don't see people being at risk. It's the ones who are pretending it's not a thing. Like those are the people who are at risk. All right. That's all we got for this week. Uh, thank you for your questions. Thank you for coming and hanging. Got any thoughts like Derek did on, on stuff that could lead to future episodes, ideas uh, on things we ought to go deeper on? Uh, feel free to drop that stuff in the comments. If you're listening on the podcast feed, there's going to be a YouTube link in your player that will take you to this video where you can drop a comment. We'd love to hear from you. I'll see you all next week.